Let's pray together. O oh, great Father, at various times, each one of us is faced with the reality of our weakness. There may be times when we feel strong and capable and self-reliant, but then we get sick or we get hurt or something happens that we cannot control and we realize just how weak we really are. We realize just how needy we really are. And it's in times like this that it's such a comfort and assurance to know that you are strong. You are not dependent like we are. You are not prone to illness and weakness and trials and uncertainty like we are. In times like this, it's such a comfort for us to remember that you know our frame. That you remember we are only dust. We are just little dusty creatures who day, whose days are like grass. We flourish for a time like the flower of the field. And then the wind passes over us and we are gone and forgotten. But you have established your throne in the heavens. Your kingdom rules over all. Over all time and all places and all circumstances. Your love is from everlasting to everlasting. You are eternal and never changing. We are weak and you are strong. Father, each of us is faced with the reality of our sinfulness. We are not just weak physically, but also morally. Each one of us sins against you every day. Sometimes we defiantly ignore your will as you have clearly revealed it to us in your word. Sometimes we genuinely think we are doing the right thing when we're actually doing the wrong thing. Even our best actions are tainted with some measure of sin. In times like this, it is such a comfort to know that you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's a blessing to know that you do not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. Instead, you show us compassion like a father shows compassion to his children. You take away our sin as far as the east is from the west. That far do you remove our transgressions from us. What a joy it is to be forgiven. And so we admit our weaknesses to you and we confess our sins and our sinfulness. We freely acknowledge the vast and infinite chasm between us and you. Between weak, sinful human beings and a perfectly holy, omnipotent God. We say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good. Father, we want to give you thanks for your good gifts to us. We thank you for the way that you provide for the financial needs of our church. We want to thank you for your provision. We want to acknowledge that you are the one who ultimately gives all good gifts You've provided richly for us, and so we joyfully give back a portion to you. It is our pleasure. It is our joy. It's our worship. Father, we thank you that you continue to provide people to be a part of this church, part of this community of Christians. We have been given so much by you. We have been given hope, forgiveness, eternal life, so we pray that we would tell others. We pray that we would faithfully and joyfully tell others about what Christ has done for us so that they too would have the opportunity to believe him, believe in him, and receive forgiveness for their sins and to give glory to his name. And so, Father, now as we turn to your word, we pray that we would listen attentively, that we would respond appropriately. We pray that each of us would say in our hearts, 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. By your spirit, Lord, may your people hear a better sermon than the one that I'm about to preach. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Exodus will be in chapter 3, about halfway through, starting in verse 16 today. We're going to go all the way through Exodus chapter 4, verse 17. Last week in our series through the book of Exodus, we saw Moses flee for his life. His attempts to bring salvation to God's people end up with him killing an Egyptian who was brutalizing an Israelite. And then being rejected after breaking up a fight between two Israelites the next day. And when one of them asked Moses if he intended to kill him as he had killed the Egyptian, he realized that his act was known. And when Pharaoh found out, he sought to kill Moses. And so Moses fled, and when he did, he ended up employed by and marrying into the household of Jethro, the priest of Midian, shepherding his flocks, marrying his daughter Zipporah, and having a son named Gershom. And there he stayed for 40 years. But the Lord was not finished with his people, and he was not finished with Moses either. The time had come for the Lord to deliver his people out of Egypt, and he intended to use Moses to do so. And so one day, out in Midian, the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush that was not consumed by the fire, revealing his intentions to his servant. And Moses, unsure of what to say to Israel, asked the Lord, who should he say has sent him? And the Lord gives Moses his name, Yahweh which roughly translates to, I am who I am, indicating some of the nature of God, that he is unchanging, that he is utterly independent, that he is eternal. Our passage today picks up where we left off in this encounter, with the Lord giving specific messages to Moses for Israel and for Pharaoh and also giving Moses signs to prove that what he says is from God. But Moses, despite his initial boldness in our passage last week, has a drastically different response to this call of God. And as we look at our passage today, I want to encourage you to recognize that the Lord is the one who works through us to accomplish what he has called us to. And that our supposed fear to do what he has commanded is really an indicator of unbelief. Because the Lord is the one who sovereignly moves all things. So let's look together at Exodus chapter 3 beginning in verse 17. Excuse me, verse 16. Where we find messages and signs. If you got a bulletin uh, or picked up one of our sermon listening guides off the back table, you'll see that we have two points this morning. And that's our first one. Messages and signs. So let's read together Exodus chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 9. Go, this is God speaking, and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise 
that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And again, he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So after Moses gets God's name, he's given these messages that God wants him to go and deliver once he gets back to Egypt. This is the first direct charge that is given to Moses that places him specifically into this role of leader of the nation and of prophet of God. Previously, we have seen Moses seemingly having these stirrings of this within himself and attempting to act upon it. He went out into Egypt and among his people and saw one of his people being brutalized. And so he, he defended him and struck down the Egyptian. He tried to mediate a conflict between two Israelites. But what Moses does is very haphazard and short-sighted. As we talked about last week, Killing one Egyptian gives the indication, Moses is of the impression, I'm going to be the salvation of these people by killing one Egyptian at a time. I'm just going to go one by one until I get enough gone that we can all get out of here. He's not really doing it in the way that the Lord would have him do it. Now, however, we see the Lord giving specific instruction to Moses in order to bring about his purposes. And what is the Lord going to do? The Lord is going to have Moses go and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And eventually, Pharaoh's going to say, get out of here. But it's not going to come easy. And so he gives these direct charges to Moses. First, he's given a message for Israel. 
Moses is instructed to go to Israel and tell them that he has a message. But notice the progression of the message. First, Moses is instructed to identify God by his covenant name. If you've not been here before, if you've forgotten, when you look in the text, when you see that capitalized Lord, where it's capital L and then smaller caps, that is where the, word, where the name Yahweh is used, the covenant name of God that he revealed to Moses from the bush. And so you'll see, he tells Moses, go to the people of Israel and say, the Lord, Yahweh. That's how he is to start his message. That is to remind them of God's incomparable nature, as we talked about last week. That name, Yahweh, is not just an indicator of God's identity. It is an indicator of God's nature, of God's person. It reveals to us things about him. And so by opening with, Yahweh has sent me to you, he is telling them, the God who is above all gods, the God who is unlike any other, he is the one who this message is from. And then he is to identify God as the God of the patriarchs. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is to remind them of God's long-lasting faithfulness. These people, though they are in slavery, they have grown up hearing the stories of what the Lord has done in the lives of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and Jacob's sons, ultimately bringing salvation to his people by bringing them into Egypt, where they later have been subjected to oppression. And so he's reminding them, the Lord is, through Moses, of his long-lasting faithfulness. And finally, he's supposed to tell them this. I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. It's a lot of ites. He is reminding them of the promise that God made way back when the covenant was inaugurated, back in Genesis 15, where God told Abraham that he was going to give him this land. In Genesis 15, 18 through 21, we find this. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So this is a reminder of the promises of God. He's to identify God by his covenant name. He's to identify God as the God of the patriarchs. And he is to say, it's time for me to fulfill that promise that I made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. But the Lord added something new here that we have not found yet in Scripture as a description of the promised land. We are told that the Lord is bringing them to this land and that it is a land flowing with milk and honey. A land flowing with milk and honey. That statement, it's not literal. There's not like milk in the rivers, okay? It's not a literal statement. It is a statement about the, fer- the fertile nature of this land. 
that where they go, this land that the Lord has promised them, their crops are going to grow exceptionally well. And why do you think the Lord is using this new information right here? Because since these promises were made, this is the first time that Israel has faced oppression and slavery, and their lives are exceedingly difficult. But the land that the Lord has given to them is abundantly fertile, and their labor will not be as burdensome. When they are in the land that the Lord has promised them, when they are in the will of God, their labor will not be as burdensome as it is now. And so by referencing this land flowing with milk and honey, what he is doing is he is helping the people to see that his promises are even more good than they realize. He's helping them to see it's not just you're going to get a land. You're going to get a good land. You're going to get a good land with good crops where you're going to be well taken care of because I am a good God. That's the promise that he is making. The Lord is sending Moses with an answer to prayer that he is going to deliver them from slavery and the fulfillment of his promises is going to be even better than they could have imagined. That's what he's saying. And in fact, when they leave Egypt, the Lord is going to give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. We're told that their captors are going to willingly give them gold and silver and jewelry and clothing. And all they have to do is just have the Israelite women go and ask for it. They're just going to show up at Egyptian houses and go, hey, I really like that necklace. Can I have it? And the Egyptians are going to go, sure. Oh, and I really like that dress. Can I have that too? Absolutely. Here you go. Oh, I've got this really nice silver platter. You want that? The Lord is going to give them out of the abundance of the Egyptians to take with them as they go into their land. Something that might slip by unnoticed here is that the Lord refers to this as plundering the Egyptians. There at the end of chapter 3, he says, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. The, that, that word usage there is interesting because when you think about it, who do we typically know of as plundering? Right? An army comes in, conquers a land. Who is it that does the plundering? The men, Right? The invading, conquering army goes around saying, I like that, it's mine now, I like that, this is mine now too. It's a, it's a symbol of strength, right? We and our army are so strong that our men can walk into your homes and take whatever they want. Here the Lord is saying, I, Yahweh, am so powerful that the women aren't going to go take by force. They're just going to walk in and go, can I have that? And the enemy will say, you sure can. Thus, you shall plunder the Egyptians. And you're going to give it to your children. These are treasures that are going to be passed down. The Lord is so mighty, so strong, that the women of his people are the ones who will plunder the mightiest nation on the face of the earth. And these will become your new family heirloom. Now, you might wonder, what? this seems a little bit unfair. Surely not all the Egyptians are cruel to the, to the Israelites. Surely they've worked really hard for these possessions. It's not really fair that the Lord's just going to 
sovereignly work in a way that causes them to give away their riches and their wealth. That's not okay, right? Please understand, this is payment for 400 years of labor and oppression. Even in the midst of their suffering, the Lord has been making provision for his people. All along, God has been keeping an account of how much they are owed for their work. And here, upon the exodus from Egypt, the the bill has come due. And the Lord is making Egypt pay it. And so the Lord assures Moses that the people of Israel will hear this message, that they will listen to his voice, and that then they are to go and deliver a message for Pharaoh. They are to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that the God, that the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Notice here that God does not identify himself as the creator of the heavens and earth. He does not identify himself as the Lord, the great king above all gods. He identifies himself as the God of the slave people. Why is that? Why is that? Because by doing this, the Lord is making a statement about the worth of the people of Israel to him. In the world's eyes, in the Pharaoh's eyes, these people are not worth anything. They are slaves. They are servants. They are so worthless that literally he commanded by law that every male baby be thrown into the Nile and drowned. And yet the Lord says, I am the God of these people. He could have chosen any identifier for himself that he, cho- that he wanted, but he chose to identify with his people, the God of the Hebrews. This is not a statement that's going to make Pharaoh tremble in fear. This is a statement that's going to make Pharaoh go, well, some God you are. You're their God, and you're not even powerful enough to stop me from killing all their male babies. You're not even powerful enough to stop me from subjugating them. But what's going to happen is that Pharaoh is going to understand, when it's all said and done, that this is the one true God. That all of his gods that he has worshipped his whole life and devoted himself to and sought power from are false and powerless. And that the God of the Hebrews is the one true God. And so they are to go to Pharaoh and say, please let us go a three days journey out into the wilderness. Some scholars have, have taken issue with this. They said, well, isn't God lying? He has no intention of letting Israel go three days to worship and come back. He's not saying, can we please have the weekend off and we'll come back to work on Monday? But what we need to understand, this is one of those instances where language gets in the way. This is an ancient expression that essentially means a long way off. A three days journey basically is a trip of indefinite duration. That's the idea here. There is no mistaking it. Pharaoh never once says, you lied to me about how long you were going. In their back and forth, as we'll see over the coming weeks, Pharaoh very much understands when they go, they are not coming back, which is why he rejects it. He is unwilling to let his servants 
go. There is no question here that God is demanding the permanent release of his people. And so why is it that the Lord is is demanding their release? Why is it that the Lord is working this way? Does he say, so that my people can go party? So that my people can get a break? So that they, they can go jet ski on the lake? No. I want you to let them go so that they may sacrifice. He is demanding the release of his people that they might worship. The Exodus is about the institution of right and sound worship. One of the things that we see over and over and over again throughout Scripture is that God cares how he is worshipped. This idea that we can invent all of these different novel ideas and ways to worship God is not found in the Bible anywhere. In fact... In the Bible, when people come up with novel ways to worship God that are outside of what he has commanded, you know what he does? He kills them. God very much takes his worship seriously. He dictates the terms of how we are to worship. And when we recognize this in a New Testament context, when we understand that our whole lives are worship. As Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that our bodies, our lives, are a, that we are to offer them to God as a spiritual act of worship, then what we understand is that not only does God dictate how we are to worship, but God dictates how we are to live. He is in absolute command of all things. It's not just that the Lord says, I am in charge of what happens on Sunday, Monday through Saturday, do whatever you want. No, all of it, all of life belongs to the Lord. He is the one who gave you life, who continues to give you breath, and thus he has ultimate authority over all of it. And so the last part of the message to Pharaoh is not really part of the message to Pharaoh, but it factors into what God is going to do in interacting with Pharaoh. He says this, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. I know he's not going to let you go unless he is compelled by a mighty hand. And I want you to notice something that is significant about this phrase. The Pharaoh was known... Not just this Pharaoh, but the the office of Pharaoh. What was said about him was that he was one who destroyed his enemies with his strong arm. He destroyed his enemies with his strong arm. And in using this phrase, mighty hand, God is showing that while Pharaoh is the most powerful man on earth, God's hand is mightier than Pharaoh's strong arm. It is important for us to remember this when our circumstances seem hopeless and the wickedness of the world seems overwhelmingly powerful. God is stronger. The day may come when we are persecuted here in our country for our faith. The day may come when we are going to be imprisoned or even killed simply for following Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, that's never going to happen here. There are nations in this world right now where it is happening. There are nations in this world right now where it is happening that were, that were some of the birthplaces of the New Testament church. They would have said, that's never going to happen here. And yet it is. 
And if that day should come, we will be faced with a choice. Do we fear the strong arm of the world so much that we deny the Lord, that we reject the things of God, or do we trust in the mighty hand of God? How can we fear when in Christ God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us? When the scriptures tell us that nothing can take us out of his hand. That same mighty hand that struck down the Pharaoh is the hand that holds us fast. And so the Lord gives these messages, but Moses does not think that the people are going to listen to him. So the Lord gives him signs of, signs of authenticity. He gives him three signs. The first one is that he turns his staff into a snake. He says, take your staff and throw it on the ground, and it immediately turns into a snake, and Moses runs from it. Now this could be an indicator that Moses is just really scared of snakes, but it's more likely that this was a very dangerous, poisonous snake that it turned into. My guess would be a cobra, since a cobra was one of the signs of Egypt. One of the goddesses that they worshipped was represented by a cobra. And as I said before, the Pharaoh's crown had, a, had an erect cobra on it. My guess is that it turned into a cobra. And Moses runs away and the Lord says, don't be afraid, just pick it up. And Moses reaches out and, and gingerly picks it up. The word that the Lord uses is grasp firmly, take hold of it. The word that is used when Moses picks it up is like quickly snatch. So the Lord says, don't be afraid, just reach down and grab it. And Moses is like, okay. But when he grabs it, it turns back into a staff. It's no longer a serpent. The Lord is making a statement about his power over their so-called God. And remember further that the serpent is a representative of sin. Because it was the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. And those who identify with the serpent are servants of that deceiver. And the Lord is showcasing that while it seems that the serpent has won and has enslaved the people of God, the Lord is powerful enough to defeat that deceiver again and again and again until the seed of the woman comes and defeats the serpent once and for all. So that's the first sign. The second sign is that the Lord has his hand. He tells him to put your hand into your cloak and then pull it out, and it is leprous like snow. Leprosy is used in the Bible for a grouping of skin diseases, the most well-known of them being one where your skin, your flesh, literally rots and falls off. And it is extraordinarily contagious. Like, if you're within a few feet of someone with leprosy, you're going to get leprosy and it is incurable. Once you get it, you've got it forever. And you no longer get to live with your family. You go outside of the camp and you live with the lepers. And so for, the, for, for Moses to pull out his hand and it is suddenly leprous, that is going to be utterly terrifying for everyone near him. But the Lord, in a show of his power over life and death, Tells him, just put your hand back in your cloak. And when he pulls it back out, it's completely whole again. The Lord is not subject to man's limitations, is what he's showing through this sign. And finally, he gives him the sign of water to blood. He said, if those two signs don't work, use this one. 
scoop up some water out of the Nile and throw it on the ground, and on the ground it's going to turn to blood. The Nile was the source of all life in Egypt. Their crops were all planted in the flood zone of the Nile because where they live is mainly desert. And so, by messing with the the water in the Nile, the Lord is literally saying, I can take away the source of your life. It's also significant because the Nile is where Pharaoh commanded the boys of the Hebrews to be thrown. And even in doing this sign, the Lord is casting judgment upon Egypt for their wickedness. God is the one who gives and takes away life. All of these signs were intended not to show Moses as powerful, but to show God as powerful. It's important that we understand this. Because it, is easy, it would have been easy for Moses to go, look at all these cool tricks I can do. But all of it was supposed to glorify God and point our attention to God. This is similar to why Jesus was doing signs and wonders. In John 20, 30, and 31, now Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The signs that Moses did were intended so that people would listen to his words, because they were the words of God. These signs were the actions of God. Miraculous works are always intended to bring glory to God and focus to his word, not to draw attention to the one that is doing them. That has historically been one of the ways that we can tell whether a work is of God or not, by looking at where it is pointing. Does it consistently point to the one who is doing it? Does it consistently point to the work itself Look at what we're doing. Look at what is happening. Come and see. Come and see. Or, putting it into our new covenant context, does it point to Christ and his church? Does it point to Christ and his church? If it's really of God, it will undeniably, indisputably point to Jesus Christ and to his church. Any so-called work of God that does not lift up Christ and does not lift up his church is not a true work of God. It's not a true work of God. That's the idea behind these signs, to show that Moses is speaking on behalf of an infinitely powerful God far beyond Pharaoh's comprehension. But what Moses has is an obedience problem. That's what we find in verses 10 through 17. Moses has an obedience problem. Let's read together, 10 through 17. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth. And teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you will do these signs. 
Moses has been given the tools to accomplish the task. But he is still not ready to go. Because he has one last excuse. He says, Lord, I'm not eloquent. I'm not a good speaker. We're not entirely sure what is being stated here. People have said, oh, well, Moses had a stutter. Well, there's no real indications in the text that Moses had any kind of speech impediment. It's possible, but we don't really see that. Maybe it's that seeing as it's been 40 years, maybe his Egyptian is a little bit rusty. Maybe he's like, I haven't spoken this language in 40 years. How am I going to go in and talk to Pharaoh? Either way, Moses is making a claim of inadequacy. He is saying, I'm not the right guy for this. I can't do it. But the Lord has the perfect rebuttal. He says to Moses, who made your mouth? Who made your mouth? Any impediment that you do or do not have, I am the one who made your mouth. Your speaking abilities are sovereignly appointed by me, Moses. And not only that, but the Lord has promised to tell Moses exactly what to say. It's like he's got an earbud in his ear and and all his lines are being fed to him. All he has to do is just open his mouth. All of his excuses are moot. But what it does is it leads to the revelation that there is something deeper happening here because Moses uses excuse after excuse after excuse and God rejects them all. So finally, Moses just says, just send somebody else. He can't even make up another excuse. He just says, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go. I want you to notice a couple things here. Last week when we saw the Lord appear to Moses, we're told that Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. He was afraid to look at God. But despite that that so-called fear, Moses has not been afraid to argue with God. Notice that? He's afraid to look at God, but God's saying, go do this. And Moses is like, but I don't want to. Not really afraid, is he? And now he's literally just saying, I just want to ignore you, God. Just, I'm not going. Don't ask me again. Send somebody else. All along, the Lord has told Moses that he will be with him, that he will give him the words, that the people will listen. And over and over again, Moses has essentially said, but what if you're wrong? But what if you, the all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign God of all creation, what if you're wrong, God? What do I do then? Do you see the absurdity of this interaction? And actually leads us into the second thing that you may not have noticed. But here in verses 10 through 17 of chapter 4, Notice, when Moses speaks to the Lord, it's not capitalized. Despite the fact that God has revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh, when Moses speaks back to God, he does not refer to him by his name. He does not call him by the name that the Lord has identified himself as. It's a subtle thing in our translations You might might miss it if you're not looking close. But it's there because it's an indicator that Moses does not have faith in God's promises. Remember, that's God's covenant name. It's the way by which they know God is God. 
And by Moses not responding to God in that way, he is essentially saying back, I don't know that I really believe you. This is where the Lord's patience runs out. And we're told that his anger burns against Moses. It it was kindled against Moses. We need to understand again, this is not a change that has been brought about in God because of Moses' actions. Because God is immutable. He is not subject to change. What this is, is a revelation of God's eternal holy anger against sin. That's what's happening here. The Lord has been revealing himself to Moses as the covenant God who keeps all of his promises, and Moses is rejecting that. And so the Lord is saying, well, okay, here's the God you might get then, the one who is infinitely wrathful against sin. His anger is kindled against Moses in that moment. It is a way to help Moses to see his error. And after this point, Moses raises no further objections. He does not ask God to send someone else. In fact, he never even says, fine, I'll go. After this point, it is just accepted that Moses is going. And so what the Lord does here, when his anger is kindled, he makes further provision. He says, you know what, fine, you got a brother. I know he can speak well. I love that little dig right there as though the Lord doesn't know about whatever problem Moses is referencing. Well, fine, you got a brother. I know he can speak okay. And so here's what we're going to do. He'll be your mouth. You'll be my mouth. You'll speak to him. I'll speak to you. And I'll work. I'll tell you both what to do. If that's how it's got to be, then that's what we'll do. The Lord is making provision. But even when his anger is kindled against Moses, even when he is making this provision... He is reaffirming his promises. He's not saying to Moses, fine, figure it out for yourself. He is saying, I'm going to bring in Aaron, and I'm still going to tell you both what to do. I'm going to speak to you, you're going to speak to him, and I'm going to teach both of you what's supposed to happen. The Lord is still making provision. Why? Because despite Moses' sin, the Lord still keeps his promises. What an incredible reminder for all of us. I've often heard believers say, well, you know, I don't feel like the Lord is really hearing my prayers because I'm not reading my Bible enough. I don't feel like the Lord is really really speaking to me because I'm not going to church like I should. Look, you should definitely be reading your Bible, and you are absolutely commanded to go to church every single Sunday. Those things are biblical. But the Lord does not withhold his goodness from you because of your sin. Do you know why? Because you are his in Christ. That's why. The Lord is not going to say, well, you're not trying hard enough, therefore, I'm not going to give you. He gives of himself fully to his people because it is who he is. And so as we consider these texts, we need to remember that the Lord always provides what we need to accomplish the task that he has laid before us. He was instructing Moses to go into the chambers of the most powerful man in the whole world and say, hey, you know all those slaves you have? Let them go, please. Remember, this is is the son of the Pharaoh who wanted Moses dead because he killed an Egyptian. 
Moses is a wanted man in the nation of Egypt. And God is saying, waltz back in there, staff in hand, and say, let my people go. He's literally telling Moses, walk into your death. And yet all along, he says, I will be with you. I will tell you what to say. The people will listen to you. I will perform these signs. I am going to outstretch my mighty hand and break the strong arm of Pharaoh. God has called us to follow after Jesus, to obey his word, to go and to tell, and he has given all of us what we need to accomplish those tasks. None of us can say, well, I can't. I don't have what I need. Yes, you do. The Lord makes provision. The Lord keeps his promises to us despite our failures. The word does not tell us that he will hold us fast unless you sin too much. He will hold us fast. No matter how dark our days, he is our God. And so for us believers, the call to us today is to cling to Christ. To cry out in faith. And to trust and obey. Because our good God keeps his promises always. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your provision that you have made for us by your spirit, for the love and care that you show to your people. Lord, we pray that you would move in our hearts today, that we would have faith, that we would trust in you with all that we are. I pray, Lord, that if any are here who do not know Christ, that you would speak to them today, give them a new heart, raise them to life, that they too would have faith. Father, move in our hearts during this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.